in a prestigious argument, a surgeon, an architect, and a politician debated over whose profession was the oldest. The surgeon boasted Eve was made from Adam's rib. That is surgery. Maybe so, said the architect, but before that, order was created from chaos, and that was the work of an architect. The politician quickly saw his cue and said, but who do you think created the chaos? (laughs) Genesis describes chaos. In the beginning, there was chaos. We're able only to imagine what that darkness and disorder was like. One Bible's note says that a formless void is not nothing, but that which is desolate and unproductive. Does that phrase describe any times in your life? Desolate and unproductive? Some teachers were feeling like that in their classes the week before Christmas break. That's an external chaos. We may be more familiar with internal chaos, those that challenge us in our minds and hearts when relationships aren't going the way we expected or when an income ends unexpectedly or when we feel overwhelmed by too many tasks that seem to be screaming for our immediate attention. Stephen Covey tells of an experience of his on the subway in New York City that he, was, he had gotten on a car and it was a quiet, fairly quiet car until they pulled into this one stop and a, a father and his children entered and it was crazy. It was, it, it was a big switch from the quiet that was before, and the children were rambunctious, they were wild, they were yelling, they were running up and down the aisle. And so it was this chaos for all the people who had been in that quiet time before. And finally, Covey confronted the man about his children. And the man opened his eyes and evaluated the situation as if he were completely unaware of all that had happened. And he said, oh, you're right. I guess I should do something about it. We just came from the hospital where their mother died about an hour ago. I don't know what to think, and I guess they don't know how to handle it either. Well, sometimes we don't know how to handle the challenges of life. It's as if we are blinded in some way. We do not have vision and we're then groping around trying to figure out where we are and where it is safe to go. We have to learn a new reality and new ways of dealing with this new reality. And I think sometimes our tendency is to be upset with ourselves because we don't know how to handle it. And yet that's not the wisest way, I don't think, because we have to learn. We have to learn. I'm watching one of my kids learn to write now, and um, whereas we know to write the letters from left to right, and we know to write our U's from the top to the bottom and back to the top, you know, she doesn't know these things, and so she has to learn them. And 
we too have to learn new things and new ways of dealing with things all through our lives and not feel bad that we don't know everything. An atheist says that he learned everything about God that he needed to know by the time he was 14. He had gone to church several times a week with his family, typically growing up. And then at 14, he quit because he knew everything about God that he needed to know. Well, you think about other areas of your life. You know, what if, what if we had stopped learning English at age 14? How would our grammar be, Tim? <laughs> Maria? <laughs> if we stopped learning about history, well, we'd be prone to repeat it. What if we stopped learning about relationships when we were 14? Can you imagine going through life going and handling relationships like an adolescent? Nothing personal, Shannon and Jonathan, Danielle. <laughs> you might have some things to learn. But you're not the only ones. The rest of us do, too. It's okay to learn. Well, our baptisms, I think, are that first step on that journey of faith. As we prepared for Christmas, we took a look at John the Baptist preparing the way for Jesus. We're told that John was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, a turning around, away from our sins, and back towards God. The listeners to John had to realize their own frailty their own weaknesses before they could entrust themselves to some sort of new expression of God. The old expressions had become no longer meaningful, and they needed more. They sensed that, and so they followed John to the river. Blaise Pascal describes us like this. Excuse me. He says, There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man, which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God, the Creator, made known through Jesus. I'm going to say it one more time because there's, it's packed. There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man, which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God, the Creator, made known through Jesus. Restlessness, desolation, unproductiveness, anxiety. These feelings pepper our days, and yet we have a Bible and a God that show us that there's another way. That whole first chapter of Genesis describes the steps taken by the universe's greatest artist as God sculpts something beautiful and meaningful out of chaos, out of darkness and formlessness. Do you believe that God can do the same for your life? A young lady writes on a weblog about her attempts to fill that vacuum in her heart. She says, I've been trying to get over my first love for years now. He's one of those guys that keeps calling you back just when you think you've run far enough not to hear. 
I feel empty. I keep finding things to fill me. And she goes on to say that if she keeps busy, maybe she won't think of him. Or if she seeks love or lust, she won't feel lonely. If she keeps her eyes on her career that she's heading toward or on her classes or schedule, she fills her schedule with classes that she won't have time to think and rationalize why they didn't work. She picked up a new book to help her get past her brokenheartedness. And it mentioned a hole. She says, I've heard of this hole before. It's the hole in our lives that only God can fill. And she continues, I'm amazed at how God continues to call his children back to himself. The hole isn't going to be filled by classes, love, lust, goals, or anything else but God. I've discovered that, have, that having Mark in my life still won't make it complete. God wants me to turn to him so that he can fill me. That turning is the repentance about which John speaks. Now Christians get more specific that, than this writer. We turn to Jesus so that God can fill us. We follow Jesus in baptism as a first step toward following him in other directions and activities, which, again, we need to learn about. Jesus' baptism was a kickoff to his ministry on earth, and there are lots of questions about whether Jesus knew that he was, you know, what he was going to be doing ahead of time. Some say no, some say yes. But regardless, here it was. Jesus' baptism, and then off he goes. And then we have the, the rest of the gospel stories for his healing and his giving and his bringing in others. So maybe you don't remember your baptism. Or maybe it was so long ago that you only have an inkling of the peer pressure you felt at the time or the nervousness or the excitement. But we can still think about what baptism means for us as a step forward in our faith. I titled this sermon poorly. When I was planning for this month, I titled all the sermons something about Newness, so I called this new spirit, thinking about the new spirit that Jesus, that the, the new spirit in Jesus' life that began at his baptism. And then as I studied the passage, passages, I, it hit me that the spirit is old. The spirit is older than dirt. And of course, I mean the Holy Spirit in Genesis 1, that spirit that hovers over the deep hovers over the chaos at the beginning. As humanity develops, that spirit continues its activity, not just hovering, but guiding, guiding fallible people all through the stories of the Hebrew Testament. And now we're to the early verses of Mark's gospel, and that old spirit makes a new appearance 
And Mark's version notes that Jesus is the one who experiences three powerful signs. First, the heavens rip open, connecting heaven to earth. They're torn apart. Not just like the little curtain that's drawn back across the stage. They're ripped open. And then Jesus sees the Spirit descend like a dove upon him. And third, Jesus hears a voice from heaven saying, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. With the power of that experience and knowledge, Jesus begins his ministry, his work for God. He goes out to teach, to heal, to call us to God, to tell those on the margins of society that God loves them as much, if not more than, the rest. So, I didn't change the sermon title in print But I want us to think about it as a lowercase s, that the Holy Spirit is not new. But the spirits within us can be. That spirit within us that connects us with the Holy Spirit, with God's Spirit, that is the new spirit. Perhaps like you, after we get our Christmas tree We carry out of storage the boxes that have been stowed since the previous January. We dig down until we find, because we're not organized to put them on top, we dig down until we find the strands of light. And since the lights are the first thing to go on our tree, we spread them out across the floor. And then we carry the little green plug over to the wall. Well, they're dark at first, of course. They're lifeless. And then... We shove that plug into the wall. And that's how I picture our spirits connecting to the Holy Spirit. That when we plug into the Holy Spirit's power, our lights come on. Some of you have read Jan Karen's novels about the people in the town of Mitford, that fictional town in North Carolina. They're in our church library if you'd like to check them out. In the book called Shepherds Abiding, the main character, Father Tim, is searching for just the right Christmas gift for his wife, Cynthia. And he's uninspired until he sees this old, dilapidated manger scene that comes to his friend's antique shop. And he sees it not with the eyes of someone who says, ooh, that looks terrible. The, the wing is broken off the angel, and the shepherd has a really messed up face. But when he sees it, it's with a new vision. He sees it with parts connected back together and repainted in bright, exciting colors for his artistic wife. So when he envisions how the set would look, he gets this new glint in his eye and a new purpose for each day of his recent retirement. He has a new spirit because he has plugged into God's spirit of joy in giving and and service to another. This year, when we plugged in the first strand of Christmas tree lights, one half worked and the other half didn't. 
We changed the fuse. We looked for a problem bulb, but we couldn't fix the problem. And I can't help thinking how that fits me sometimes. The outlet has power, but I'm only half lit. That spirit is available to us, more faithful than the electric company, more powerful than a raging river, more loving than a mother holding a long-awaited baby. As a church, we help each other plug into the power of God. When we are half-lit, we look to others to help us to pray us back to full power. When our own spirits feel desolate, we trust others to share a hug or a warm word of hope. We do that within these walls. And, of course, our prayer is that we would do that without as well, beyond. We want to take the power of God's Spirit with us. So I want you to watch for electrical outlets. And when you see an electrical outlet, pause. And mentally, or with your heart, however it works for you, plug in your spirit to the Holy Spirit. Inhale, and I have to bring this out, inspire. You hear the spire and spirit? Inhale, breathe in the Spirit of God. Sense the renewal. And then, don't forget to exhale as you go with your new spirit of love and hope. Let's pray. God of power and hope and love. We pray that we would be plugged into you, not just in this sanctuary, in this place of peace, but we ask for your guidance to carry it with us, to share your power and love with the world. In Christ's name, amen.